Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We have interesting conversations with insightful people about how to apply behavioral sciences to work and life. In this episode, we spoke to Ori Brofman, multiple New York Times bestselling author. His specialties range from organizational culture, employee engagement, business transformation, leadership, and even emerging technologies. Ori is the founder and president of Starfish Leadership and co-founder of the Fully Charged Institute with Tom Rath. And by the way, he's also the Distinguished Teaching Fellow at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. (laughs) Okay, so... My life seems kind of insignificant in comparison. Yeah, yours and mine both. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Our talk with Ori was wide-ranging. Yeah, like most of our interviews Exactly. We touched on topics ranging from distributed trust, gaining power through seeding control in distributed or decentralized industries, making a new blockchain currency called Groove Coins. Super cool. I love that idea. Groove Coins. Do, do you think we'd be able to sell any of those? I think we could sell two. Oh, one for you and one <laughs> yeah, for me? I, th- I think so. All right. Maybe maybe not the best idea. <laughs> well, we also discussed being born or how being born in Israel and growing up in El Paso, Texas, impacted Ori's life, how communities and tribes impact our behaviors, and how we do or do not imply intent in the way that we communicate. Um, we talked about cash and cocaine. Cash and cocaine. Oh, why not, right? <laughs> We talked about how technology is a huge behavioral science experiment. And um, we also got to spend some time on the new podcast that he and his brother are working on called Psychological Mysteries. And of course, we talked about music. Yeah, how did we get to that? I don't know. Always that seems to happen. Anyway, uh, I recommend for our listeners, go out and check out Psychological Mysteries. Great podcast. Yeah, it was a great interview. We covered lots of ground and it was lots of fun. Right. Before you listen, we would like to ask your help. Stars and written reviews really help move us up in Apple and in other pod services algorithms. On Apple, in order to leave us a review or to give us some stars, all you have to do is click on Shows, Find Behavioral Grooves, scroll down to the bottom past all of our episodes, and rate us or write us a review. If you could do that, we would greatly, greatly appreciate it. It helps in getting the word out about behavioral grooves and build our community to make it even larger. Yeah, greatly appreciate it. If you're one of the 49% of our listeners uh, listening at home, then we hope that you sit back with your favorite listening beverage and enjoy our very interesting discussion with Ori Brofman. Welcome, Ori Brofman, to the Behavioral Grooves podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great for you to be here. We're really, we're really excited about this. Thanks, thanks for coming. Yeah. We're gonna, we're gonna start with a quick speed round, and uh, we're just gonna start with something that you've already anticipated: bicycle or unicycle? Definitely bicycle. Life without a mobile phone or without a computer? Which would you rather have without a mobile yeah. phone? Yeah, without a mobile phone. Yeah, oh. I, I, I um. I started out talking with my students. Um, whenever you talk about your mobile phone, insert the word crack instead of mobile phone and see if, if it makes sense. Like, oh, I left my crack at home. Um, <laughs> it really is, though, isn't it? It has crack. become kind of that, that you know dopamine release form that we just have. We take carry around in our hands and it's perfectly legal. So, yeah, yeah I, I've made mine in uh, uh, there's a setting you can make it black and white. So it's a little bit less crack. Oh, which is also kind of worrisome that you're carrying around this thing with you that you're like, I have to protect myself from it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of, kind of insane. Um, Okay, travel with a set itinerary or no itinerary? No itinerary. No itinerary. All right. Would you rather be a spider or a starfish? Ah, <laughs> the combo special, but probably a starfish these days. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Which which leads us into you know one of your big books was you know the spider and the starfish. Uh, give us like just the the thirty thousand foot overview of of what that book was about. I know it was many years ago, but it, it still it's, is it's some a great power. Book. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so the central metaphor is that you cut the head of a spider and it dies, but you cut off the arm of a starfish and it grows one back. 
Right. And that's because unlike the spider, the starfish doesn't have a central brain. And you think about that as a metaphor for business and society. Everything from Alcoholics Anonymous to Wikipedia are very starfish-like organizations without top-down structure. Um, and you see more and more examples by the day. Um, everything from the Tea Party to blockchain to everything ah, in between. Very interesting. What, well, what do you you know? Um, in the in the book, you you talked a lot about uh, the music industry in 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 the days when Napster and Kazaa, you know, were um, were actually you know gaining a lot of prominence, and how the um, you know how the the big labels didn't really respond all all that well. Um, could you imagine a world where where Napster and Kazaa actually just got deep sixed? You know, uh, what can, can you imagine a world where they they didn't really gain that much power? Uh, or do you think it was inevitable? Um, that's a great question. I think it was inevitable that every industry tends to shift from more centralized to decentralized and back and forth. And that it's um, if if you have an industry that is overly centralized, um, mm-hmm. people are going to feel disempowered and fi- figure out ways to collectively be able to uh, gain powers, whether it's sharing music or whether it's uh, uh, doing commerce on Bitcoin. Okay. Um, so I, th- I think it was somewhat inevitable. I think, though, that the response from the music industry um, at first to try and crush these was made the problem worse. But it's been interesting that over the last decade or so, music has really shifted from or the money shifted from recording to really live performances. Um, uh, And that people are eager to, oftentimes eager to give away their music, um, knowing that you're going to show up at a, uh, at a concert. Uh, And it's interesting that um, sometimes we gain power by ceding control, which is kind of a, a new, new kind of way. It is interesting. I think that whole, music business dynamic, particularly from the artist perspective, right? The artist perspective is very different today than it is than it was 10, 15, definitely 20 years ago when you're looking at it from the perspective of where their revenues are coming from. Because places like Spotify, um, Pandora, all of those elements, and Tim will talk about this off, off your ear off, you know, <laughs> you, you make no money of that as, a, as an artist or relatively little unless you're really one of the huge, huge, you know, recording artists out there while, you know, giving away that music seems kind of opposite of what most people would think about doing. But if it draws, you get the crowd, you get a YouTube channel, you get everything else that goes on today. It really is kind of disinf- you know, kind of detangled from that record label that it, of, of yesteryear. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and you have to wonder what will happen um, as more disintermediation happens, right? Mm-hmm. So um, is there an even more decentralized approach than Spotify? Will there be a day when, one day where fans can directly purchase uh, through blockchain uh, a subscription to your content? And if they pay a few pennies for it in aggregate, uh, do you need the middleman always? Yeah. That's that's wild. I mean, honestly, that is that is sort of a, a next level evolution in in that model. Uh, you could. I wonder what that would be like for Airbnb or Uber, where there really is is hardly even a centralized system um, uh, at all. You know, to to manage those kinds of things because those are very community based uh, organizations. Um, where do you see where, do you see an industry where that's ripe for that is moving in that direction? Um, I think Tim, you just mentioned a couple of them. Uh, I think Uber. Who, who knows, right? Um, yeah. So you, you talk about Uber, uh, whatever percentage they take these days. Um, it's it's not completely efficient uh, as a market. So if you can potentially distribute trust even more, right? Where you have a a and and and, and you start thinking about. Um, these um, potential micro communities okay. that uh, let's say let's say we arbitrarily uh, decided to do uh, to have commerce on some kind of currency, blockchain currency. 
Okay. We'll, we'll call it the the Groove Coin. Okay. And, and <laughs> Perfect. That's our favorite I currency. Like, I like that coin. <laughs> yes. um, so uh, I don't know what particular skills the three of us might have. Maybe there's uh, music creation. We can philosophize. We can. <laughs> um, <laughs> so maybe we'll, we'll bring in a, a few other people into our little community. Uh, people who maybe have medical training or legal training or whatever it is. And let's say there's a community now of a hundred or a couple hundred people. Within that community, if all the commerce is done using this coin, then do you really need, and, and this sounds kind of out there, but do you really need a lot of the elements that society provides? Or can you have those alone in your, you can kind of live in this little technological island uh, where everything from an Uber ride to music can be provided within this small community. With, with the groove coins as opposed to using dollars or yen or whatever other currency is out there. Right. And is, is, is that a feasible uh, economic approach as people start feeling burnt out in some ways from, uh, I guess, the, the bigger system? Well, is this metaphorically sort of like getting off the grid uh, in, in, in smaller ways, getting off the grid with, tech, with, uh, with electricity? You know, I mean, uh, you know, I have friends now who they live in the suburbs and they have, you know, these lovely houses, but they have these beautiful southern uh, facing roofs. And um, they've, you know, they've loaded up the roof uh, with uh, photo cells and they're selling they're they're basically selling electricity back to the to the energy company. Yeah. So I, I live in San Francisco. Um, our house has a uh, solar panel on, on on the roof, and I, I, I don't I don't think we're energy neutral yet. Um, there isn't that much sun in San Francisco, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> get a foggy day. Every yeah, day I, I, I I try, uh, but yeah, <laughs> it, it, that's the idea, right? Can you create? Um, and I think in, in certain ways we do live in technological islands. We already live in technological islands when it comes to our maybe social networks that. Mm -hmm. uh, can we do more commerce with, with one another? And, and is there a thirst for that? And I think. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Well, you talked about uh, when you started talking about that, it was this distribution of trust, right? And trust, yeah. I think, is that key piece yeah. as you're, you're talking about that. And Dan Ariely talked about this when we were at a conference with him uh, about a month ago now. And just the, the elements of trust and the difference that trust makes in any of our interactions with other people and the the power that we you we forget how hard life would be if we didn't have trust um, right or li living in a world without trust just creates enormous amounts of dead weight loss just you know just almost unfathomable right but it, it's it's still around us right we and and the smaller and more immediate the community the easier it would be to not have that right the easier it would be to have more trust Right? Is is that kind of what you, what what you're thinking, Ori? Precisely. So let's say you have a group of ten people that that you know and trust really well. Let, let's say these mm -hmm. are people that you've known for a long time, and then let's say each one of them is able to uh, uh, vouch for ten other folks. So all mm -hmm. of a sudden, you have a community of a hundred people, where no one is more than one degree of separation away from saying like, "This is someone who I really deeply trust." And if you can verify that and, you know, okay, you're part of this community, then, yeah, there's think of how much effort we spend on a daily basis dealing with uh, untrust, potentially untrustworthy people, right? <laughs> and making sure that they don't screw us over. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is absolutely out there. It is absolutely a part of, uh, part of our world. But get, I, wanna, I also want to just return to this idea of, of this idea of the – the micro community having its own currency, how how would uh, services fit into this? How would how would sort of the the big things that that we lean on our larger scale communities for, like electricity or you know paved roads and uh, you know uh, you know sewage and water things like that? Uh, how, how would those work in you know in your incredibly well developed model here? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I feel like a technological hippie here. Uh, I, <laughs> so let's see. I, I, I think that we're not going to be able to 
uh, it disintermediate paved roads and uh, water, um, and and you're going to have to integrate with society within society for those. I think though electricity, um, we're we're finding out that we we, we no. can be pretty independent. Um, yeah. And is there going to be a thirst? So living here in California and in San Francisco, there is definitely a sense of. Um, it's hard to explain. Um, I think maybe a thirst for community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, California, San Francisco, I would say, isn't terribly uh, religious oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is, still is a, a, a thirst to belong to something, to, to some community. And, and we have, I think the religion of San Francisco probably comes from Burning Man. Uh, yeah. the, the art festival. Uh, awesome. It, it really is, right? Um, it's terrific. And you think about the norms of Burning Man, and Burning Man is very much about distributed decision-making, about um, not not a whole lot of, of control. Right. Uh, and you think about what might be some of the um, second and third order effects of, uh, you know, having... A lot of technological folks and CEOs show up at the event and have, have such an influence on them. So, it, it's funny that you mentioned it. We uh, we had a, a discussion with Caroline Webb, who uh, is this British author that wrote a wonderful book called "How to Have a Good Day," and it's uh, it's incredibly well researched and and very buttoned up and. And geez, Caroline is, you know, she's, you know, Davos, she goes to Davos and she's an economist by, by training, very, very buttoned up. And then it's sort of in the, I think it was after our conversation, we said, so what do you like to do for fun? She said, oh, my husband and I like to go out to Burning Man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, so it used to be about 10 years ago, people would be like, well, you know, I'm going to a trip to the desert and it was... (laughs) And now Which was code, right? It was, yeah, code, it was code for going to the Burning Man, right? Like yeah. It's you know yeah. late summer, early yeah. September, right? Yeah, and so my brother gives me a lot of uh, 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 gives me a hard time for going, and he's like, "You go there and you pay money to use porta potties and uh, <laughs> and suffer from the heat and the dust. suffer from the heat and dust and, and complain." And to, to a degree, his He's right, and to a degree, I, I think he misses that there is a spiritual component to it. Right. And uh, have you guys been yet? Not no. yet. Tim is actually making plans. Yeah. So oh, yeah? He is, he is yeah. looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. 2019. Yes. Oh, this year. or yeah. Next soon, year, yeah. Soon to be this year. Soon to be this year. Yeah. I, I, I think in terms of school years. <laughs> I have I have kids as well. It is the eighteen nineteen school year. There you go. There, there you go. Can, uh, oh, go ahead. Did you? Well, no, I was just. The, I think there's an element that you're talking about from the Burning Man and that spirituality component of it that is this community aspect, right? There's there's a community of people that go that have a similar outlook. I mean, if you go to Burning Man, it means you're probably going there with an idea of what it stands for. And and definitely if you're a return person. And so you're going and you're self-selecting into this community. It's one of the things that we try to do with the, we started Behavioral Grooves as a meetup because we, we wanted people to get together and build a community to talk about and to learn about behavioral science. And, and again, people are self-selecting into these communities. Do you see that, that self-selection with the technology growing um, or does it need to, as in Burning Man, there's a face-to-face component that I think you wouldn't get. It couldn't just be an online Burning Man. It wouldn't be the same. Is there is there something there? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it could be an online Burning Man just yet. Uh, maybe with virtual reality, but I think we're 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 far from that. And right. I, I I do think that we are thirsty for for common spirituality and yeah. and common community. And you're right, there is a code that if I know someone went to Burning Man, I'm more likely to return their emails or to uh, act, in, uh, act in more community according to the community norms. Right. 
so wow. you two will be in, in, ingratiated, and, and and then you'll, <laughs> you'll get a little card. I'll be I'll be out. I'm not going. I'm gonna yeah, be come. I'm gonna be the out group, and Tim's gonna be the in group. Well, I'm gonna that won't bode well with me. Or we need to convince Kurt to go. We need <laughs> yes, to convince Kurt, Kurt to go. Yeah. Um, are, are you thinking about it, Kurt? Would you would you consider it? I would. I think at this point, I have two young children, and and so just the logistics of actually oh, going. You're a responsible human being. Okay, I get it. <laughs> I don't know if I would go that far. Away. I don't think responsible is the right word. I I have I have a question for you. I, yeah. I'm, I'm curious about um, you come to the United States. Uh, you're young, and you move to El. Pa- you, you you grow up in El Paso, Texas, basically. How does that inform your view? What? How does that impact this 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 life experience that that, that you've had? Um, Gosh, what, what a great question! So I was yeah, you're right. I was born in Israel and grew up in Texas, which gives me a really weird accent. People keep on asking. <laughs> Uh, people have guessed Canadian. No one's ever uh, guessed. Oh, that sounds like an Israeli Texan has uh, accent. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Which is pretty common, right? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, every, but pretty much everybody has got an Israeli Texan accent. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, growing up in Israel, I, 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 I and moving to Texas, uh, uh, Israel was the the worldview. Um, was relatively insular um, to imagine uh, having neighbors, uh, and I mean nation neighbors, as friends was, was you're surrounded by uh, so-called enemies. Mm-hmm. And El Paso is such a border town. So it's, uh, it, it borders both uh, Mexico and New Mexico. It, it was such a welcoming place. It was really... Um, Gave me a sense of these different uh, communities that already existed, and and I would say that in El, in El Paso, probably uh, the communities between Mexico and, and Texas already existed, and then th- there's an arbitrary border that doesn't mean much uh, yeah. in in terms of families or in terms of uh, I, I really felt a sense of belonging there and a sense of uh, acceptance, and also, frankly, seeing the vast economic uh, inequality growing up really shaped me as who I am. And unfortunately, we're seeing more of that in San Francisco where I live, uh, the Mm -hmm. economic inequality. And uh, I think as a country, unfortunately, we are seeing more exclusionary exclusionary behavior or or trends. And I think that we we need to really overcome that. And I think we overcome that with community and and with, with a sense of belonging to to something yeah we were just talking actually before uh we got on we were talking about various different elements of of how do you get past that component of they're so different from us if they're not part of our immediate community or if they're not part of our tribe right and so we 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 have this component where we believe the out group is so vastly different when in fact most of the time we we cross over at very high percentages of what we want as individuals, as humans, as, as how we think about the world. Um, and then, but those differences get magnified and, and we, we, we tend to, to overanalyze or, or think that they're so different than us. Yeah. I'll, t- I'll, 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 I'll tell you uh, two quick stories. One was of nine year old me. And uh, w- when I was put in school, uh, one of my best friends was this guy named Amir and his dad was Syrian, and lo and behold, kind of my world was was blown up, saying, "Wow, uh, the Syrian kid and 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 I were very similar, and there's far more. We had far more similarities than we did any differences. Although growing up, I, I perceived someone from Syria as the quote enemy. And you yeah, fast right, forward right. about I don't know three decades. I did my undergrad at Berkeley." I was a peace and conflict studies major. I started a vegan nonprofit, and I do wor- a lot of work now with the U.S. military. So I was in this hunting lodge in Kansas, uh, in this <laughs> middle of nowhere in Kansas, surrounded by all these animal heads, like trying to order a vegan thing off the menu. Um, and <laughs> oh, good luck, <laughs> right? And I'm talking to this guy who uh, I'm running uh, a program for a bunch of army officers. And he talks to me about bow hunting and uh, says, you know, there may- maybe aren't so many differences between uh, 
he kind of says, oh, well, you know, you Berkeley guys aren't all, you don't seem all that bad. And I'm like, oh, well, thanks. <laughs> wow. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, and, and really recognizing that when you put politics aside, there's probably very little that actually divides us. And it's this, this, this really notion of uh, separation, I think it's getting, exactly what you're saying, is getting increasingly magnified and I don't think it's doing us any good. And how do we focus again on, on what connects us? Yeah, what are those connectors as opposed to the, the components? And I think it's, it's being done purposefully on the political perspective. Be you, 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 you know, think? What, what, what was you say that? <laughs> <laughs> Kurt, Kurt, we Wait a second. Cap, yeah, Captain <laughs> Obvious. Captain Obvious, right. right. <laughs> but I think there's even some components of this. I'm just moving on. I'm not even going there. We got that. Have them there. But I think there's this other aspect that that then bleeds over into other aspects of our lives that we don't even realize. And so this element of, of us versus them good guys, bad guys, attributing intent when we don't have any idea around intent. And that intent is usually, if it's the out group, it's usually bad. If it's the in group, it's always good, regardless of what the outcome is. <laughs> right. Um, and there's all these factors that go into it. And I think things like Burning Man, um, and we were talking earlier, I'm part of a Rotary Club, and we bring variety, you know, we have all these different people that, that are in this Rotary Club, we're doing great work. Um, and I don't see them as Republicans or Democrats or old or young or whatever, you know, arbitrary kind of line that you put into. When you're it. raking leaves, you're just helping somebody clean their yard. We're raking leaves, you know, or we're, we're, we're yeah. helping out at the food bank or the food shelf. And I think the more that we can build some of those communities um, that bring different people together, like you said, you're in a hunting lodge in Kansas with these people. <laughs> and, hey, Berkeley guys aren't all that bad. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, so I mean, you even look at Rotary and the huge effect that it's had. It's on global polio, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, polio, and Rotarians are have done so much for this. And uh, what you see is a pattern over and over and over again. And I keep on for, forgetting uh, about the importance of this. But the pattern is that you get people with shared values who work together towards a common cause. Yeah, right. And lo and behold, Duh. when that happens. Uh, we all get along really well, and uh, we, we we can accomplish amazing things. Um, and yet, I even find myself so on a, on a regular basis really thinking about that person or them, and I keep on being challenged with my view of of them, and, yeah. and how oftentimes it's you know, yeah, well, it's a I, story. Yeah, aren't isn't something like uh, over ninety nine percent of human DNA? Uh, the, the same, like across all human beings, isn't isn't something north of ninety nine percent of all of our yeah. DNA is is identical? That that all the differences in hair color and 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 eye color and you know physical characteristics and all these kinds of things are are all encapsulated in just a very tiny percentage of our of our DNA. It, it, it's we just lose sight of that so easily. No. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> All right. We, okay. We, 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 yeah. Okay. We tend to go hole. down rabbit holes and various. <laughs> yeah, I, I, <laughs> it's 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 part of what we do. So <laughs> you, you had part me thinking about community. water for some reason. Uh, that uh, apparently there hasn't been a lot of new water on Earth for millions of years. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the, we're drinking the same water. That's we're drinking been the around... same water. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There you go. Next time you have a glass of water, think about that. The, you're, the dinosaurs. The dinosaur the head, right? There yeah, you go. Exactly. <laughs> so another book that you wrote, uh, along with your brother, I'm, I'm moving on. So here we go, <laughs> Captain Obvious here, um, was, was Sway. Loved it. And uh, it was one of those books that I, I think encapsulated a time period where behavioral economics was just starting to come into the mainstream. Nudge was made that same year, I believe, yeah. that you guys published Sway. And and yeah. you captured this this component of, you know, again, great, great book um, and, and, and various different things. And it has one of Tim's all-time favorite lines Truly. from a book in it. Um, Truly. And I'm going to read it and just... Uh, oh, you're going to get it right. I'm going to read I, it I and get it right it, here. Yeah, yeah. This is... Uh, and and, and it, it's about this component. It says... And the more money there is on the line, the more pleasure, the more the pleasure center lights up. A monetary reward is, biologically speaking, 
like a tiny line of cocaine. I love that. And they let us keep it in. I'm so happy oh, they let us keep that. <laughs> were the publishers nervous about that? I don't remember if they were nervous about that specific line, but we were a great relationship with, with our publisher. And uh, but I was afraid that they'd be a little bit like, Wait a second, and, and <laughs> <laughs> that I, you know, and I, I read the book in, in uh, shortly after it came out, and just uh, that that line just like that said it all for me. That just really caps just wow. captured it. Well, for for me, this whole idea of uh, monetary rewards, you know, just like just to, to be able to say that you know um, we're gonna we're gonna strive for this, we're going to. We're going to basically seek the same kind of experience that we have uh, as as we get with cocaine. That, that was just a mind blowing idea, uh, you know, ten years ago. I thought that was just terrific. And and again, and as Kurt framed it, you know, uh, so much. Uh, uh, I, I don't know. I guess um, I guess at that point, like uh, predictably irrational had been written. Dan's Dan's book, uh, but so much literature had not had yet to be exposed had yet to be unfolded and and so that was just a mind-blowing concept and that we did so much for the sake of community and for the sake of 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 each other and that if we can just expose that part of human behavior or or, or we can just concentrate on 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 that then boy people don't act like cokeheads which is (laughs) yeah that kind of want a company where I, i want that company Right. And th- yeah. there's an interesting component about that. And so thinking about where behavioral economics and behavioral science has come in the past 10 years. So it's been 10 years um, in there and, and the Richard Thaler getting the uh, Nobel Prize and, wow. and just the the kind of explosion of this. Where do you see from where you sit? I mean, where, where do you see behavioral economics going? Where do you see uh, behavioral science kind of going in the next 10 years? Is there any thoughts on that? That's, that's a good question. I think we're all parts of very large social experiments with, <laughs> with, with technology. Um, and we're starting to really see the effect that uh, mass exposure to, say, social media um, mm. in its effect. Um, and th- there's going to be very... There already is good data that, that lives within a lot of these companies, but even to the level of, to my understanding, so if you have an iPhone, if you if you iMessage someone, you get a really nice uh, blue response. It's a, it's a very nice color. Uh, if if you have an, another iPhone, if you message someone who doesn't have an iPhone, you get that ugly green. Yes. <laughs> now I always thought that was just well, you know, that's just like how it is. But no, that's actually there by design. Sure. That green is there to make you feel that the other person is other, and they found the ugliest green that they could. That, that they could. <laughs> I did not know that. Um, wow. So I, I've been thinking about. Uh, I didn't know whether to ditch my iPhone or not in favor of uh, an Android phone, and a big reason, honestly, was I didn't want to be the green guy. I didn't want to be. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's uh, it, wow. it is the social pressure. Of, of leaving the group was too high for you. The, the stupid blue and green group, right? But you don't want to be... Wow. God forbid oh. it should be a, a green. So I think that now that we have the behavioral economics lens, and I think that now, I think there's so much that's being uncovered about human behavior. And, right. Uh, just you think about the ding every time someone likes a Facebook post or something like that. Um, much to my friend's chagrin, I, I, I quit Facebook about, what is it, six months ago. I, I, I was having dinner with a, fr- uh, with a student, and we're talking about kind of how Facebook really is a little bit like, a uh, again, a dopamine hit. And, yeah. uh, and I was like, I'll quit. You know, I'll, I'll show them. I'll quit. Uh, and I... I don't know if you've ever tried to quit Facebook. So I, I took it out of my, um, I took it off of my phone. Okay. Um, but then I found myself mysteriously then checking it on using the browser version, on, you know. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I decided to quit, quit. And you go to the quit page and they say, we're sorry to see that you're thinking about leaving, but we're going to give you a two-week kind of cooling off period. A cooling you're, off period. They don't call it a cooling off period, but it's basically a cooling off period where your account doesn't 
actually get deleted for another two or three weeks. I'm like, wow, I've been really a part of this social experiment, oh haven't I? God. Yes. Yeah, truly. I mean, so this is this is that if there's any amount of regret, and of course there almost always is, like, you know, re regret such a, a profound and common uh, uh, attribute in the human condition. It, uh, so, it, so you're calling it regret, which is a very nice word for withdrawal. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was just going to say. You were, we're, we're probably not you. We're probably addicted much more so than we ever think. I mean, when you said, oh, yeah, take it off your phone and just have it there. But then you're going to the browser. To yeah. actually do it. It's that, like that's addict behavior. Um, you know, who's my new dealer? My dealer's gone. I gotta yeah. go find my new dealer. I gotta find my fix. <laughs> I'm going downtown, you know, San yeah. Francisco, trying to find a Wi-Fi so I can get on, you know. It uh, but that it, I I really do think you're at that point of we're all in this larger social experiment. Um, you know, even we we there's in within Uber. Within Airbnb, we've we've talked with um, some of the the chief behavioral scientists. Yeah, Can, and the, Candace Hogan at Airbnb yeah. and Charlene Wu at, at uh, or excuse me, Candace Hogan at, at uh, Uber and yeah. Charlene Wu at uh, and, Airbnb. And they are running thousands of experiments all the time, all the time because yeah. of the technology, and they can do that. And so again, the, how you word something does that make a difference in how many clicks go through and all those different things? And it's just. At some point, we're going to be so – they're going to know people so well. This is an ethical question that we have all the time is that they're just going to be able to – you know, we're going to be robots because they're going to give us the right message and we're going to do – you know, they say X and we'll do Y. Um, right. So, that, scary so, thing. so if you look at, at, at social media through the lens of a substance, right? So mm -hmm. I know that if I have uh, a glass of wine – Maybe I shouldn't drive, or um, and I know that's going to impact my behavior in certain ways. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, should you start thinking about, hey, if I've had exposure to social media or to X or Y because it's been that well calibrated, should I then think that I'm under the influence of some sub substance? And the data is suggesting wow. that exposure, I think about after 15 minutes or so to social media is very similar to, to how you look at exposure to uh, illicit substances. Wow. Well, speaking of uh, okay, I'm going to I'm going to switch off of, uh, yeah, yeah. Off of substances. Yeah, yeah, but I, but um, speaking of a grand social experiment, um, you're you're launching a new podcast. Yes, um, it's with my brother, my older brother Rom, and it's called Psychological Mysteries. So and tell us about it. So Rom is a psychologist, and um, there are still these. Uh, unsolved psychological questions uh, yes. that um, I, I've, I've kind of uh, left psychologists scra scratching their heads. And each episode, we look at one uh, mystery. And uh, for example, how much does parenting really matter? Um, right. Is, is, is it going to have an, an, an effect or not? Uh, another one is... Um, is narcissism always a bad trait, uh, and or can it sometimes can little doses of it be useful? And Ram gives me a quiz in the beginning of every episode, and I try my best to pass the quiz, but I uh, I always uh, I, I do horribly <laughs> on it. Um, it. It shows who the brains are in the family, and yeah, and then we analyze it. So uh, we're we're just launching it. How tell me about this 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 question of is parenting even worth it? How wow how uh, it's hard for me to imagine this idea that eh, parenting yeah parenting parenting so um, yeah, yeah so it turns out that when you look at uh, the 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 large data that parenting on average doesn't doesn't really make much of a difference except for on the extremes. And there's been a lot of studies on very negative parenting having mm -hmm. a huge uh, 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 psychological effect on uh, kids. And there hasn't been as much research, though, on how parenting might really make a difference uh, with very, very positive parenting. Mm. And, wow. and we start looking at that. So we know in the extremes that it really does make a difference. How And... 
Should then parents really think about, okay, rather than thinking about I'm an average parent, what would it look like to be an unbelievably supportive dad? And, right. Uh, what what might be some of the effect on kids? So, um, yeah, it's it, 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 it's a topic that when you start looking at you you realize that uh, uh, we can actually make a difference on 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 the extremes, and hopefully we choose the positive. Right. Well, we will uh, we'll we'll definitely put uh, psychological mysteries. Uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes because I think uh, people should be aware well, of that. If they're and, interested and in this, they're going to be interested in that. So yeah, there well, you go. I am. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm ready to subscribe. I'll I'll tell you that. All right, Tim. Is it time to talk music? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Tim always gets the biggest smile at this point of the interview. Well, so I just we think it's so much fun, right? Music is such an interesting aspect to all of our lives. Whether when I, you know, whether it's, oh, I just listened to whatever's on Spotify or my Pandora playlist or, or, uh, oh yeah, I was in a band in college or, you know, whatever it is. I think that there's always something. You, you have an interesting musical background. Um, so I used to work at Tower Records when it still existed. Yeah. And I, I wanted to play violin. Uh, and, and by that, I, I mean, like I played it through high school and wanted to be a music major and discovered uh, freshman year that I absolutely sucked, uh, which is my parents knew all along, but they were very supportive and kind parents, uh, which was in a weird way, kind of a gift uh, because I have friends who were much better musicians than I am. And uh, boy, it's, it's a, it's a struggle trying to make a living purely from music. And yeah. I'm, I'm glad that that got kicked out. Kicked. Uh, <laughs> you, you're fortunate, <laughs> actually. Yeah, I'm really glad you sucked at 18. Um, it's supposed to be really good, and then being uh, upset all life that I, it, it's hard to make a living from it. Uh, so of course, I chose writing, which is so much easier. Oh right! Oh right! Oh, that's a breed. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Obviously. So, uh, so with all that access, it, I mean, at Tower Records, it must have been like a kid in a candy shop, right? I mean, to have access to all this this great music. Did you did you get to see a lot of great shows? Was there, you know, you were always probably on the forefront of the latest and the newest uh, stuff that was coming out. Yeah, I was. Um, at, at that time, there was a lot of. Um, uh, Baroque stuff coming out on authentic instruments, and <laughs> that was okay. Yeah, right. So you're. Uh, I love it. I, I went to the Conservatory of Music in Kansas City, so I'm I'm with you. Um, so all this music being played on authentic uh, instruments, which is uh, especially if you listen to string music, it's it's almost a if you listen to side by side of say Vivaldi's even uh, Four Seasons and listen to it on. A traditional recording versus authentic recording. It's so different and, and so much uh, lighter, um, more improvisational. And uh, I got very into um, ancient music in uh, college. Uh, we, That's, yeah. So when you, you, you talk about authentic instruments, are these, would these be, uh, would, is a synonym for that period instruments? Correct, correct, period instruments. Okay. okay. Uh, so and, it's a slightly different bow. And yeah. uh, different strings, and uh, just uh, the, the the physical instrument itself is a violin looked a little different. Yeah, so so let's go back to Vivaldi's Four Seasons, right? So yeah. he's he's in Venice, he's he's writing all this fabulous uh, music, and he's he's got a small band of, of musicians that are that are playing these things. Uh, how 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 would the performance be different uh, with the, with these period instruments than it would be with uh, modern violins, violas, etc.? To my understanding, it was a lot less structured. There would be more, more uh, improvisation within each piece, oh, and wow. uh, there might be depending on the instruments that you could uh, get a hold of. From performance to performance, you might hear some more variants than we'd hear today. So, so, e so each musician had the uh, authority uh, or ability to sort of go. Oh, I think I'm just going to add some. Yeah, uh, uh, here. your soloist would. Yeah. You solo this wood within within uh -huh. a piece, so it's it. I guess maybe a way of thinking about it is it's it's more like a dead concert. Like uh -huh. they would jam more. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's kind of cool. That's a good Actually. in San Francisco. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> right, it all comes together. Which it actually did. I was um, wandering around Burning Man a few years ago, and lo and behold, I I stumbled onto this uh, camp of one of the big. Uh, 
Baroque performance uh, people. <laughs> and I was like, wow, the, the, my worlds have collided, Burning Man and... Uh, <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> with like that... EDM music playing in the background, I was like, yeah, this is... <laughs> and, and so you mentioned that at the beginning too so now you're you're getting into edm music and so how, how does that square with your you know baroque classical background is it just the, a natural progression or is it just a new phase i don't know so i i i i went from uh ancient music to uh having deep love for um 80s um like new wave so the smiths the cure um and it's hard for me to explain why I'm so drawn uh, to EDM. Maybe because it, um, I, I really like the um, the sampling and resampling that DJs uh, do, and, and and have a few friends who are who are DJs. And you really a good DJ um, from performance to performance isn't isn't going to sound the same. So there there is kind of the jazz element to. It. It's a dead concert again, right? Exactly. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should compare it to jazz rather than to dead. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd be more highbrow. Yeah, but exactly. <laughs> but it still works. It totally, it, yeah. it totally works. Yeah. That is so cool. Well, uh, that's that's really fun. Thank you for for sharing those observations with us, Ori. I really, really appreciate that. And thank you for your time today. This is uh, we we have this is, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. This was fun. Yeah, so it's really I, fun. It flew by. Yeah. Hopefully for the <laughs> listeners as well. <laughs> that, go to, that go, you know, to Burning Man, to Baroque music, to, <laughs> right? you know. <laughs> or Baroque music <laughs> at Burning Man, which is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How about that? Yeah, how about that? Yeah, how about that? Yeah. All right. Well, Ori, thank you. Yes. And uh, we wish you good luck on uh, on the psychology uh, Psychological Mysteries podcast uh and we're gonna we're gonna promote that in our in our notes i think that that'd be great for our listeners to sort of check uh, out check that out find a new community dig in you know thanks guys welcome to our grooving session where tim and i groove on what we learned from our behavioral groups interview have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics and whatever else comes into our widely decentralized and distributed brains <laughs> Thank you, Ori. <laughs> <laughs> Thought you'd like that. So, Tim, what caught your attention with our conversation with Ori? There were several things. Okay. Uh, Burning Man struck me. Uh, the uh, discussion about cocaine, of course, and bringing that up because that's what caught me in the book the very first time. Uh, that was a cool thing. The uh, so social circles caught me. But I want to start with decentralization. Okay. What about decentralization do you so, want to talk about? Well, it rang a bell to me because this goes back to a 1982 book uh, written during the time of organizational behavior, kind of focusing on on the organizational commitment of the citizenry, like looking at employees as citizens with sort of the rights and things like that. And there was this book that was written by um, Richard Moday okay. uh, in 1982 called Employee Organizational Linkages, uh, The Psychology of Commitment, Ab Absenteeism, and Turnover. And they... The, the authors basically said, you know, decentralization is a good thing. And why is that? Well, because it gives us that sense of context. Like, oh, decisions are being made. Things are happening in a, in right around me that are actually guided by, uh, you know, by people who I'm working with rather than some anonymous, uh, you know, central hierarchy or bureaucracy. So people feel that they have more control over their work life in this decentralized element because they have a greater line of sight into where decisions are being made. They may have a greater influence into the areas yeah. where those decisions are being made. It isn't some foreign entity that is off in some uh, corporate headquarters in New York. Exactly. They are, decisions exactly. are being made right here in this local facility, plant, whatever it would and, be. And so here we are 30 years after this book has been written, and we have the rise of blockchain. Mm. You yeah. Know, you know, the, sort of the ultimate in decentralization, right? Right. And he talks about that, I think, really interesting uh, in thinking through 
you know, that the analogy of that spider versus the starfish. Yeah, it's a great, and, great image. And the element of, hey, you, you, you lop off the head of a spider, the spider's dead. Actually, if you lop off a couple legs of the spider, the spider is injured. Whereas the starfish grows a new leg or various different things. It's very yeah. hard to, to kill that starfish. Um, and the element of a decentralized program, industry, company, service, again, is very difficult to kill off. Or even had a, com- he had a specific thing that he said about power. Wasn't there a, a, a note that he made about how, how um, the distributed... Seeding uh, uh, control. Seeding control leads to power, right? Right. Um, so he talked about seeding control in distributed or decentralized industries. And really that was that conversation he had about music, right. uh, music today. And we talked about the component of how musicians are seeding control over the rights to the music itself, right? You're not getting much money from uh, selling the songs anymore. You're giving those away, but you're getting a different stream of revenue through advertising yeah. on YouTube channels because a lot of people are now there or performances, et cetera. It, it is also interesting uh, with the music industry discussion to, to, to think about this idea that uh, musicians could bypass the d- distributors entirely mm-hmm. and go straight to the consumers. I, I still believe that there's value in the aggregation of ideas. Like it's it's easy for it's easy for me to go to a bookstore and browse, whether it's online or in person, because then I get to see a lot of authors that I wouldn't normally see. Right. Uh, which might make this this very personal distribution model uh, difficult. Uh, it, who's going to find out about me as an artist unless I'm next to or uh, displayed near an artist that they are already familiar with? Right. I think it, it comes back into some things on social media that we've talked about and the way that we consume news and information these days, which doesn't have that centralized kind of component to bring things all together now. Now we're actually getting segregated away because the way that the AI works around that, you see things that you have liked before. So then you keep deeper down that rabbit hole of uh, different components. And so there is... I think uh, a role for some of the centralization. But to his point, gosh, it seems like the world is really moving into this decentralized world. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Uh, Kurt, what what was the most important thing that you came away with from Maurice? Groove coins. (laughs) Just the the name, Groove coins. Come on, man. Bitcoin, Groove coin. We could, I think, I mean, those like grew like, I forget, hundreds of thousands and we could just sell a few of them and we could then retire. Don't you think? Let's just do it. Let's just <laughs> scrap this whole podcasting thing. Yeah, let's just do, let's the just group, do coins. group coins. <laughs> no, uh, what was interesting, though, is he talked about distributed trust with that. And yeah. that, that gets back into the whole blockchain component. It gets into your decentralized element. And this element of blockchain, which is really about distributing trust across variety of different people. And I think it was really interesting. Uh, Rachel Botsman who is a professor and talks about, a business professor and talks about this stuff, uh, talks about how we've gone through three different iterations of trust, right? There was this first um, element where we had local trust based on that one-on-one interaction, those kind of personal connections that you have, all of that component of going into there moved into institutional trust. You had to trust the institutions, whether that be organization, government, local community organizations, your 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 record company or your news organization to bring you all of this this interesting piece. But now we're going away from that, right? We're losing trust in at least some of those organizational pieces. And we're moving to this distributed trust, which takes that component of any single source having the trust and distributes it across many people. 
Yeah. So I wonder, uh, I've been reflecting on this since we talked to Ori, and I wonder how much of that is uh, cultural. Okay. So how does, uh, again, if, if I think about the way our biases tend to be regionalized, right? That we think about, um, I'm, I'm more apt to buy a stock in a company that I can see on my way to work than I am a, a company that I, I, I don't ever see, in, you know, face to face. Right. So is this distributed trust more apt to happen in an environment where there's already a cultural environment, a context in which people are already pretty trustworthy with each other, where there is either good institutional trust and good uh, interpersonal trust. See, I think actually distributed trust, at least in the way that blockchain, and I am not an expert in blockchain at all. And so if I've totally messed up my understanding of this, listeners, please let us know. But the beauty of that distributed trust in a blockchain is it doesn't matter if you know them. It doesn't right. matter how... Because the system itself because, is transparent. Right. And because it is the system and the way that that blockchain works and saying, I'm going to check you, you're going to check him, he's going to check you. And if there's any mistake within there, then it's going to kick it back, right? So that you... You, that trust is distributed so widely that it doesn't impact any one relationship or culture or various different things. So going back to Dan Ariely, right, when he was talking about his uh, trip so, to South America, South America yeah. and now he had his buys pen and he had to go to three different places because the culture just didn't have that trust to have the guy who's showing you the pen uh, sell you the pen and actually collect the money for the pen and give the right. pen out, right? right? You had to have three different people doing that. doesn't matter because now what you have is you have a distributed element where trust is um, parlayed out to all these different individuals and they all have to come together. And so, when it all comes together, then you know it's true. So maybe my question is um, adoption of uh, distributed trust systems. Okay. Is it going to be slower, or will it will it grow at the same rate in worlds where in environments, contexts, cultures, where there is higher corruption, for instance, using this Dan Ariely, um, you know, example? Because our biases are our biases. Right. Right. Will we simply forego uh, hundreds of thousands of years of evolution of of biases against interpersonal trust? Of course. Because you we just. Ha- <laughs> Evolution, some evolution, right? Yeah, yes. whatever. Right. You bring up a really good point. The how quickly something like this is going to be adopted in a high trust culture versus a low trust culture. Yes, and the fact that within a low trust culture, if if the cost is minimal, right? Then and that's what blockchain really is getting at is reducing all of these costs that are associated with this. I would assume, it's a big assumption, I would assume that those would probably have a higher uptake on that than, yeah. than others. All right. Okay. What else? Wow. Uh, there was so much. Uh, Burning Man. Burning Man. <laughs> you know, uh, electronic dance music, uh, classical music. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just a fan of Ori for just being such a renaissance dude in so much of what he does and how he looks at the world. So let's talk Burning Man, because you are planning on going to Burning Man in 2019. You've never been. <laughs> never been. We've talked with Caroline Webb. She, she, she brought it up. You're talking with Ori. He brought it up. So there's of our people that we've interviewed. There's a it percentage that yeah. it keeps coming up. Yeah. Do you think there's something magical that will happen to you at Burning Man? <laughs> it depends that, on that what all I of a sudden for. <laughs> you'll be super successful and. All of these others? What? No, but I'm. I remember talking to Dan Ariely after he went the the first year. Oh, Dan went too. Dan there you went go. as well. And, okay. And he said it's a huge experiment in in this barter culture. It's a big economics experiment in Dan's mind, and so that's kind of what I'm I'm curious about. I think Caroline alluded to that in our conversation, and um, Ori certainly teed up this idea that it is sort of a big social experiment. Well, it's a community. Year. He it's talked a, about yeah. it as this community of people, and that 
again, getting to some of the trust. He, if he heard that you had been to Burning Man, he's more likely to take your call or to respond to your email. Because be- we would be in tribe. Because you would be in tribe. Yeah, I think that yeah. is fascinating. So, I think it's fascinating too. So. It, but will that tribe maintain? Because you got some facts and figures well, on the yeah. numbers, right? Yeah, so it started you know, in the late 80s, right, with, with basically two guys just saying, we're going to do this. And grabbing a couple of their friends and just doing it with with no one. But by the by the late '90s, there was like eight thousand people going. You know, this year there'll be eighty thousand people that go to Burning Man. That's a big damn community. Can you have a tribe of eighty thousand people? That's a really good question. I mean, you think about the component when it was eight thousand. You can probably do that when it was smaller. Obviously, that works. But is there such a cultural infusion of the Burning Man ethos that it kind of does say, yeah, if you've gone, you get it, you understand, we now have this connection? I suppose, uh, going off on a rabbit hole here, it's like a college um, sport component, right? You have hundreds of thousands of people or even a pro sport fan, right? Right. You go into a football game and there's 60,000 people in that stadium. And they're all, all there for, for basically for one purpose. Oh well, yeah. So, but for a very short period of, of time, tribe, you know, and yeah. if you're a Vikings fan, do you trust somebody who's a Vikings fan more than a green Bay fan or, <laughs> or an Eagles fan? Pretty or? much. Of course. <laughs> you know, there's, Bob Cialdini talks about this, right? You know, yeah. you know, being the helper uh, story yeah. uh, with, with, with whether you're wearing a, uh, I'm a soccer fan Jersey or I'm a specific team fan or or the The opposing opposing team team. right and and who gets helped yeah Uh, and in that if you're wearing a jersey of your the team that you support uh or that the the helper supports you're more likely to be helped yeah versus the opposing jersey you're less likely to be helped yeah so i think it's fascinating but just even in general that larger context that he brings up that wow you're uh you're a soccer fan and so I will help you. I will be more likely to help you because you're wearing a generic soccer jersey. So bifurcation of an eighty thousand group, uh, you know, uh, um, community is natural, right? It's going to break down into smaller groups. Um, there are there are tents and uh, pods and areas and all kinds of things like that to bring even more like-minded people into more like-minded smaller uh, and smaller and smaller niches. and smaller yeah. more relevant more relevant more prox- proximate that sort of thing one of the things i'm switching gears here for everybody one of the things <laughs> that we talked about when we were talking about tribes and communities with ori though was this element of implied intent and we imply the intent of people in their interactions with us. Thus, as you mentioned, I think within there, if you're within tribe, we tend to put a positive implied uh, good intent, good intent upon what you're, you're telling me the information, what you're trying to do versus we're very suspect of anybody out of tribe. Right. Um, And I just thought that was a fascinating component. And I think that plays out in a number of arenas, political, um, organizational, even thinking about organizations and the element of um, silos within those organizations. And so I'm in the marketing department, that's my tribe, uh, versus I'm in the sales department, that's my tribe. And so the intent that you imply upon the decisions that the other tribe makes or that your own tribe makes can vastly influence how you perceive those components. Yeah. And yet going back to Cialdini, shouldn't we be thinking about, shouldn't we not wearing a marketing shirt or a sales shirt? We should be wearing the organizational shirt. And so we rise that, that component up to an organizational shirt. Um, Absolutely. It's an interesting concept. I, I think we should groove on that at some point. In, I, I in depth. completely agree. I mean, I've got a, I've got a client that I'm traveling to, to to visit on Monday to have this very discussion about getting two very large parts of the or, or the organization to work more closely as teams, not just workmates. Right. Right. To go from oh we work together to we are a team. Right. So building that tribe, building right. that community. 
that's interesting. Love yeah. to, we, we, to tell us how that goes. I will. I All will. Right. We'll bring that back. Okay. I have a question for you. All right. You use music to go to sleep by. Yes, I do. Do you also use music for like studying or reading or writing or uh, do does music accompany you in any other parts of your day? It accompanies me when I'm driving. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm a big fan of that. Either that or NPR or a podcast of, of some such. Um, actually, no, I don't use music per se when I'm doing work. And I don't know why. I think I could definitely do it. I think there's this element where... I use music at night, and we've talked about this in, in other podcasts, that um, because it helps me take my mind off of whatever my mind is ruminating on, and, right, I, and I right. get brought into the music, and thus then I can fall asleep. When my I think my concern of using music in, in the work component is that I will then get brought into the music as opposed to being able to focus in because on what that, I'm doing. Right, because at that point, you actually want to be focused on writing or working or whatever, reading whatever you're doing. Now, that being said, that would happen if there's lyrics in there. But I wonder if there was just background music, so a instrumental-type mm-hmm. component, and setting a specific vibe or tone if that would help, it would maybe some priming thing. I might have to run an experiment on this. See, for me, there is no such thing as background music. Okay. If there's music, on, I'm going to listen to it. So um, obviously, you do not have music I, on when no you way. are. No yeah. way. I cannot. I cannot have have music on. Do so. you have background noise? Do you need or, no. or can you? Do you need to have headphones on and, or absolute silence? I, I I can live with a certain amount of din. I suppose, okay. you know, a street noise or, you know, some background. But the more there is, the more difficult it is to work. So I think about coffee shops, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the U.S. This is um, way too noisy. Uh, the, 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 the whir of the machines grinding the, the beans and people ordering. And, and the conversations the, that are going on. At the table next door, way too much for me. Can't. No, no, can do. But there are a ton of people, though, that work in those environments and seem to do it quite effectively. It's a damn mystery to me. <laughs> I don't understand that one. <laughs> it's crazy. All right. So with that, everybody, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ori and Tim and my musing on it and whatever else came into that distributed and decentralized brains of ours. Uh, And with that, keep Keep on on grooving. grooving.